0: But just because they are the children of God, the chosen people, chosen as a nation, it did not mean that every individual in that nation went to heaven. And so he continues here in verse 8, because there's no substitute for personal faith. It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants.
1: Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a difficult passage from Romans chapter 9, in which the Apostle Paul makes an argument for the Jewish nation being God's chosen nation. But some of the terminology that the Bible uses when it expresses God's preference for the Israelites can be confusing, particularly when using the words love and hate. Let's go ahead and join Pastor Carl now as he deals with the subject of sovereign election in a message entitled, Chosen from the Womb. Take the word of God with you
0: this morning and turn to the book of Romans chapter nine. Romans chapter nine. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this wonderful letter. And right now we're in one of the most controversial chapters in all of the Bible. It is certainly one of the most volatile in one of the most explosive topics in all the Bible, the doctrine of sovereign election. And in one word, Romans 9 can be summarized with the word elect or sovereign, for God sovereignly elects the people of Israel. Now in the paragraph that is before us today, some of the words seem rather shocking. Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. But if they are rightly understood and contextually understood, they can be incredibly reassuring. And so in this chapter of Scripture, Paul is giving us three illustrations of the sovereignty of God. First, in the supernatural conception of Isaac and God's choice of him. Second, in the sovereign election of Jacob over Esau. And third, we'll look at it next time, Lord willing, the judicial hardening of Pharaoh. So last time we dealt with Isaac. Today we're going to deal with Jacob and Esau, and next time with Pharaoh. As you can see, the title of this morning's message there in your note taking outline is Chosen from the Womb. And so we are trying to ask and answer the question. When the Bible speaks of the fact that Jacob was chosen from the womb, does that mean that God predestinates some to go to heaven and others to go to hell? Now to get a running start into our passage, let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 9. Follow along, I'm reading from the New American Standard. With a broken heart, the apostle says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, Would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Now, the doctrine of sovereign election is often misunderstood and misapplied by both Christian and non Christian alike. But we need to let the Word of God speak for itself. I believe in preaching the Bible. I don't believe I should mess up the Word of God or try to explain away the Word of God. I try to tell it just like it is and leave it how I found it. And that's what we are to do. We are to let Scripture renew our minds. And some of us this morning, we need to bring our thinking in calibration with the Bible because it's out of sync. And if we study this passage on election, you discover that you have some preconceived notions that are wrong then throw them away If I can share a brief word of testimony when I was a new Christian I was one through a non-Calvinistic organization but the first church I was a part of was a very Calvinistic church I didn't know any better but I was thankful they had the gospel and they opened the Bible and I was taught five points of Calvinism and it seemed rather logical But as I began to grow up in Christ, I began to see that while some things may be logical, they are not always biblical. John Calvin wrote a five-volume series. You usually buy it in two volumes. It's called The Institutes. I I have owned it for 25 years. I've read it cover to cover. And in it, he espouses his doctrine of sovereign election. John Calvin was a Christian two years when he wrote that work. Now, I know very few believers who've been saved two years who have all their ducks in a row. In fact, they may have the gospel, of course they do, to be a true Christian, but there's a lot of things they still need to sort out. And so I want us to sort out this thing of sovereign election here in Romans 9 through 11. As I mentioned to you before, some view 9 through 11 almost as an interruption in Paul's exposition of salvation here in Romans and that's the theme of Romans salvation it's the gospel but it's not an interruption Paul is answering a question really that some people would have at the end of chapter 8 if nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord then why is it that it appears that God didn't really love Israel with an everlasting love like he said because it appears that God has abandoned Israel And Paul would say, no, he has not. It is not God who abandoned Israel. It is Israel who has abandoned God. And so in this section, it really is a further argument of how secure and how true God's promises are to his people in spite of what they do with those promises and in spite of what they think about God. And so it really becomes an illustration of our security in Christ, but it also is an explanation of how God is going to deal with the Jewish people. Now in Romans chapter 9, as you can see on this chart, we saw that the theme is Israel's past election. Out of all the nations of the world, God chose Israel to be the people from whom he would bring the Christ. When you come into Romans chapter 10, it deals with Israel's current rejection. Why are they in unbelief? And it's because there are two pictures of Messiah in the Old Testament. One where he rules as a sovereign Lord, and the other is when he dies as a suffering servant. And if you are under the oppression of Rome, and if you've become self-righteous so that you don't think you really even need a Savior, then you will gravitate to the example of one who's a sovereign ruler. And Jesus didn't meet that need in their first coming, and so in their unbelief and in their self-righteousness, they rejected him. He came to his own, and his own received him not. And so to the leaders of Israel, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. So over chapter 9, we have written the word election. Over 10, we have the word rejection. Chapter 11 deals with restoration of Israel's future restoration. That God is not done with the people of Israel. That salvation history happens through Israel. It was in Jerusalem that God had the death of his son take place right outside the city, and it's in the same city that Jesus is going to literally physically come back to as his feet touch the Mount of Olives. All of history, all of salvation history, is centered around this group of people known as Jews. Now let's zoom in on the immediate context. In verses 1 through 3, we saw Paul with a broken heart and his concern for his Jewish brothers. And then in verses 4 and 5, if you remember he enumerates seven wonderful privileges that had been given to them as a nation. And Paul mentions these to show that Israel is incomparable to any nation on the earth. But he also mentions them to highlight the problem that is at hand, namely that they rejected the Lord Jesus. The Christ came for them, he belonged to them, but they did not belong to him. And so with that in verse six, he introduces this thought, it is not as though the word of God has failed. God's promises that he made, these seven wonderful blessings and promises, has not failed. How do we know? Because or for, they are not all Israel who descended from Israel. And we saw that there was a play on words that Paul is using. There's the person Jacob, whom God says in Genesis 28, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. And so Paul is simply affirming, they are not all Israel, spiritually speaking, who descended from Israel, that there is born again Israel, and there's unbelieving Israel. There's those who have responded to Messiah, and of course all the apostles were believers. Everyone in Acts 1 through 7 that's converted is a Jew, So while he came to his own and the leadership rejected him and the nation as a whole rejected him, there was still tens of thousands out of those millions who did bow the heart. And we will see in the 11th chapter, the explanation for that, that God has always had his remnant. And so there were two Israels in the New Testament and there's two Israels in the Old Testament in both halves of our Bible. We will see, and we studied it already, but we'll see it again again. Then in the Old Testament, God redeemed the people out of Egypt, but all that came out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb were not automatically saved. And So we looked at earlier on in Numbers 16, the rebellion of Korah. And Korah in the New Testament, in the book of Jude, we are told is an apostate. This morning he is in hell. And yet he led this big revolution, and thousands of Jewish people followed him, and they were literally sucked up alive into Sheol. So they are not all Israel who descended from Israel. And the same is true today. There are Israelis all across the world and some who are Jews for Jesus. They are born-again believers. But for the most part, they are not. So you could paraphrase verse 6. Not everyone is a true Jew just because he was born into a Jewish family. So very simply, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That simply means that you can be a descendant of ethnic Israel without being a part of spiritual believing Israel. So you have this subset of nations out of the thousands of nations in the world. There's one nation called Israel, and within that circle, there's another circle that we might describe as true Israel or as believing Israel. So no, the promises of God has not failed because there were some who responded. And so to further illustrate the truth, he gives now two illustrations from their history. We looked at the first last week, we're going to look at the second, that just because you are physically related to a person does not mean that you necessarily share in the same spiritual blessings. That's true today, your parents may be Christians, but that doesn't mean that you are automatically a Christian. And so to highlight the fact that not all Israel are true Israel, he goes back, and not with salvation illustrations, but with illustrations that concern a covenant that God made with a man named Abraham. That everyone who came out of Abraham's loins do not share in the same spiritual blessing of that covenant. And that's what we're going to further explore today. So two illustrations, first with Isaac and Ishmael, and the second with Jacob and... Now, we saw last time that some would take these illustrations and from them they would conclude that before the foundation of the world, God created and made some people to go to heaven and he created and made other people to go to hell. Now, on the spectrum of things, there are two extreme camps. One is what we call Arminianism. If that's a term that's new to you, don't worry about it. But basically what Arminianism says is that man is totally free And he can act and respond independently of God. That there's a spark left within him by which all by himself, on his own, he can come to Jesus Christ. And so typically in Arminian theology, the logical extent of that is that you can also, after you're saved, reject Christ and lose your salvation. On the other end of the spectrum is what we call Calvinism. And Calvinism would affirm, there are many things in Calvinism that are absolutely true because they're biblical, but there are some aspects of it that are untruths. But they would affirm that man is dead in his trespasses and sins. And because we are dead in our trespasses and sins, we cannot choose God. That God in eternity past chose you. And while you, as an act of your will, said yes to Jesus, they would say the only way and the only reason you said yes is because God first said yes to you, and he said no to others. Now, I don't believe either camp is correct. I don't think the Arminian camp is correct. I don't believe the Calvinistic camp is correct. I told you before I'm Calvinian, if you want to put a label on me. I recognize and affirm that people are dead in sin. No man can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. Jesus plainly said it. There's none righteous, there's none who seeks God, no, not one. But unlike my Reformed friends who say you are regenerated before you believe, they say you're regenerated. I've talked to Reformed friends, oh, he's already born again. I said, what do you mean he's born again? He hasn't come to faith. He's already born again, but he's going to say yes. That's nonsense. You're not regenerated, you're not born again before you believe. You hear the message of truth, you believe it, and you're sealed with the Spirit. That's the order in Ephesians 1, and it's illustrated all the way through the Acts of the Apostles and affirmed in the epistles. With that said, I do believe that there's a pre-salvation work on people, that if there's none who seeks God, not, no no, not one, then God must be the first to stir, and I believe he stirs all, because God is interested in saving all. But some people, as Acts 7.51 teaches, are stiff-necked and they can resist the Holy Spirit and say no to God. And so to help us to understand this, the first illustration we looked at was found in verse 7. He says, Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. How do I know that not all of the descendants or offspring or literally Abraham's seed, as the King James puts it, share the same spiritual blessing? He tells me, because through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And so if you remember, Abraham, through Hagar, his handmaid, had a son by the name of Ishmael. And later on, when his body was long past the ability to uh, have a relation with his wife. And after Sarah's womb was long past her ability to have a baby, God rejuvenated both of them, and they had a baby by the name of Isaac. Now, that's not what Abraham expected. Abraham, all along, initially thought, oh, Eleazar, the servant, he's going to be your man. He says, no, 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 no. One is going to come from your own loins. Oh. So he assumes then, later on, since Sarah is unable to get pregnant, that he must want, as Sarah prompted him, to take Hagar. And then he later finds out, oh, no, 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 that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant at all. And so in Genesis 17 and verse 15, let me read it to you again. We studied it last week. God came to Abraham and he said, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, my princess, but Sarah, princess. Why? Because she's going to become a princess of entire nations, of entire peoples. I will bless her. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. And then I will bless her. And she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born or a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And we saw when we studied this in Romans 4 that this was not the laugh of unbelief. That was Sarah's initial response. She laughed in her unbelief. But for Abraham, as Romans 4 gives us divine commentary on it, tells us that this man never wavered in faith, that this was a laugh of shock, of absolute amazement. And then if you remember, Abraham pleased with God. He says, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and his name shall be named Isaac, from the Hebrew word that means to laugh. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. That's the plan that I have for you and Sarah, Abraham. But don't worry about Ishmael. I have a plan for him as well. And so we read in Genesis 17 and verse 20, as for Ishmael, I've heard you, which tells me that Abraham had been praying for Ishmael. All along, he thought Ishmael was going to be the one from whom God would bring Messiah, from whom, therefore, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But God had a different plan for Ishmael. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. And he shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah... And then this is the verse we... See, quoted today in Romans 9 and verse 10, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. God had chosen Isaac. God could not bring Messiah through two families, through two boys. It has to be either Ishmael and Isaac. They can't both get married and have a baby, and from that line comes Messiah. God has to choose one. And so... It's very clear, and this is what Paul is affirming in Romans 9 and verse 10, that God chose the lineage that would come out of Isaac, that he would be the son of promise. That is God's sovereign decision. Now, that does not mean in God choosing Isaac to bring the Messiah that he hated Ishmael and that today Ishmael is in hell. Not at all. And Paul makes that clear. And Genesis makes it clear. In Genesis 21 and verse 13, we read this. And of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. And of course, if you know history, Ishmael had 12 sons like Jacob had 12. He has 12 sons that formed 12 Arab nations. And God exceedingly blessed the Arab nations. And they are some of the wealthiest people on the planet even to this day. At the end of Ishmael's life, we read and studied this verse from Genesis 25. Let me read it again. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. God says that Ishmael was gathered to his people. Who are his people? He only has a dad and a mom at this point who has died. Abraham has already died Where did he go, to hell or heaven? He went to heaven. He went to literally Abraham's bosom, as the New Testament calls it, paradise. And today he's in the New Jerusalem. How about his mother, Hagar? Well, if you know Genesis, you know in Genesis 16 that when she died, she died as a believer. So you're going to meet Hagar in heaven someday. So the only people that he has who has died... Is his dad and his mom, and they're both, in New Testament terminology, home of the Lord. In fact, if you look at the phrase, gathered gathered with his people, it's only used seven times in all of the Bible, in every time of a believer. It's used in Genesis 25 in verse 8 when Abraham dies. It's used in the verse that we just read of Ishmael in Genesis 25. It's used of Isaac when he dies in Genesis 35. Isaac, the type of Christ. It's used of Jacob in Genesis 49. It's used of Aaron in Numbers 20. It's used of Moses in Deuteronomy 33. And it's used of that godly king, King Josiah, who also is gathered to his people in Second Kings 22. So we would say that he went home to be with the Lord. But here's the point. Ishmael, though he's blessed of God, though you will meet Ishmael in heaven someday, he did not share the same spiritual blessing that Isaac did in the sense that Messiah didn't come out of his family, it came out of Isaac's family. And yet he was physically related to Abraham. Abraham. That's the point that Paul wants to make, that it's possible to be physically related to Abraham and not necessarily to share in the same spiritual blessings. He's already affirmed that in verse 6, that not all Israel are true Israel. And now he affirms it with two illustrations, that there are other people that come out of Abraham's line and they don't share the same covenant blessings of God. Now, God told Abraham that he was not to be distressed over his son Ishmael in Genesis 21, 12. Literally, the Hebrew says, you're not to be grievous. I've heard your prayer. What was he praying for his son for? You know the things that mattered to Abraham were spiritual blessings. And those are the things that matter to every parent. You don't care if your child makes a name for himself, whether he's wealthy or any of those things. Those are all meaningless to you if your son or daughter dies and goes to hell. Here, the father of the faithful, the friend of God, the father of all who believe, loved this little boy who was given to him at the age of 86 and he prayed earnestly for this son and you know that he's going to meet this son someday in heaven because he's gathered to his people. To further explain, look at verse 8 in your Bibles of Romans 9. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. It's not Abraham's other children by Hagar and later by Ketorah after Sarah dies, and he has six more boys when he marries again. It's the children of Isaac. Now, the term children of God is used in different ways in the Bible. Sometimes it's used in a broad way, like in Malachi 2.15 or in Acts 17, of, of someone who's a child of God in the sense that they are created by God. God is the one who gave us all life and breath. And in that sense, you can say we're all children of God only in a creative sense, and that we're made in his image and likeness. It's also used in a spiritual sense, like in John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he has given the right, the power, the authority to be children of God. But it's also used to describe the nation of Israel as a whole but just because they are the children of God the chosen people chosen as a nation it did not mean that every individual in that nation went to heaven and so he continues here in verse 8 because there's no substitute for personal faith it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants For this is the word of promise. And he quotes Genesis 18 that we had just read. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. So it is not the natural children, the children of the flesh, who are simply physical descendants of Abraham, who are the children of God. Clearly, the children of the promise, the children of the seed, the children of the sperma, are Isaac's descendants and not Ishmael's. Now, I think it will become clearer to you. This is the meat of the word. This is not the milk. It's complicated, but I took the time to review that to set the stage as he further explains that what is in view here is national election and not personal election, and he's going to do that with this second illustration concerning Jacob and Esau. Three simple points in your outline. First, God's choice of Jacob was a choice of God, not man. His choice was the choice of God, not man. Please notice, if you will now, verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. So the second illustration proves God's right to sovereignly choose one nation over another. And God's choice has absolutely nothing to do with man. And it has everything to do with himself. You see, someone could look at the first illustration with Isaac and Ishmael and say, well, we know why God chose Isaac. It's clear. Ishmael was not legitimate. He came through Hagar. No wonder God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. Well, Paul reminds us in the second illustration, no, it doesn't have anything to do with human merit or performance or anything. It has everything to do with God's sovereign choice. And so notice how this 10th verse begins. And not only this, that is, not only did Sarah receive a divine promise, but Rebekah also received a promise concerning her two sons, Jacob and Esau.
1: There has been much confusion around Ishmael, and although he was not the son of promise, God still loved him and sent his son to die for him. If you'd like to hear this message again in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and request program ROM46. Tomorrow we'll continue to look at Dr. Brogy's message as he looks at Ishmael's half-brother Isaac. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.